The passage that just before this, we learned that you, believer in Christ, you who are led by the Spirit, are sons of God. And because you are God's children, you are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. To all of which our hearts say amen. But then suddenly it's like a scene in a movie where the record skips and the music stops and the mouths fall to the floor. Because the next thing that Paul mentions is suffering. And the mood changes. I love being a son of God, an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. But I dislike the end of verse 17. We are joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. We would much prefer to be joint heirs with Christ in everything except suffering. I don't enjoy suffering. I don't enjoy preaching about suffering. I don't even enjoy thinking about suffering. Suffering. I'm sure this is true for you as well. But what I want you to understand is that our God knows that we need instruction and encouragement concerning suffering. And that's why this passage is here. And in this passage, our God teaches us that our present sufferings are nothing compared to our future glory. Your present suffering is nothing compared to your future glory. Therefore, you must endure suffering now in hope with perseverance. You must endure suffering now in hope with perseverance. We will unpack that statement in three parts. First, in verse 18, there is a comparison between your present suffering and your future glory. Second, there is an illustration of suffering in hope with perseverance in verses 19 through 22. And then third, in verses 23 through 25, there's a conclusion. You must endure suffering in hope with endurance. Let's look first at the comparison. The comparison is between your present suffering and your future glory. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is, first of all, an acknowledgement of present sufferings. Paul calls them the sufferings of this present time. You see, Christians do not deny the reality of suffering. It does no good to pretend suffering does not exist. It does no good to pretend that it is pleasant. It is suffering, it does exist, and it is unpleasant. Now, we know that the apostle knew what it was to suffer. We only need to read through the book of Acts to get a good account of the many sufferings in his life. And we gain a sense of what he endured. The apostle also knew that all Christians including you, are subject to present suffering. And that is because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Son of God in the divine sense, himself suffered. And he is the pattern for all the sons of God. 
the Son of God became incarnate and suffered unto glory. And Paul knows that we being sons of God must follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with him. We ourselves are sons of God and joint heirs with him. So it's unavoidable we will suffer as the children of God. Jesus said that the servant cannot be greater than the master. Our master suffered. If we indeed follow him, we ourselves will suffer. Now, what are these present sufferings? Well, they are physical and spiritual miseries. Everything from your first diaper rash until the day of your death. These sufferings include temptation to sin. Right, A a big part of chapter 8 has been warring against sin, putting to death the deeds of the body. That's suffering. The slings and arrows of the devil, that's suffering. Standing against, being tempted, that is suffering. This includes things like persecution. Now, there are things like outright persecution, where someone explicitly tries to do harm to you because of your profession. And then there are things like uh, implicit or soft persecution where the, the laws and customs of your society are just inclined against your faith in Christ. Not only is there persecution, but there is in this life loss. Loss of friends. Loss of positions. Loss of material things. Loss of parents. Loss of children. I can go on, but you understand that part of your sufferings in this life are the loss of good things. These sufferings include grief, sorrow, betrayal, anguish, disappointments, broken hearts, sometimes hunger and thirst, sometimes poverty or the threat of poverty, physical pain, illnesses, diseases, and of course, death itself. All of these things and many more are included in these present sufferings. Job summarized it very well. He said this in Job chapter 14, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. You see, our days on this earth are short but they make up for that short time with the amount of troubles we have. But as we said, Christians do not deal with suffering by denying it. We deal with the prospect of suffering by comparing it to our future glory. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. The picture here is that of a scale or balance. And the idea is is that we place our future glory on one end of that scale, on one end of that balance. And on the other side, we add up all of our sufferings up to and including our death. And we find that all of the suffering that we compile onto that scale cannot move the balance one hair's breadth. It doesn't even make a difference. It doesn't even register. Can that be so? That our future glory is really so great that all of the present sufferings can't even move the bar. 
This is what Paul is saying. It's not even worthy to be compared. It is perhaps like having an elephant on one end of the scale and a speck of dust or a flea on the other. It's not even recognizable. Not even worth comparing. Even to look at the two of them, you would say there's, there's no point in, in weighing the two together. We already know that the weight of this future glory is so much greater. There's just no comparison to these present sufferings. You see, the weight of your future glory so nullifies the weight of suffering that it may as well be nothing. It's not even worthy of comparison. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How can this be? Well, there are many ways in which your future glory will be greater than your present sufferings. I'm just going to mention two of them for right now. First of all, the beauty, the the brilliance, the splendor, the greatness of your future glory will so exceed the ugliness of your present suffering and the sin which caused it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read this. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the Apostle John speaking of the day of our glorification, when we are entirely remade in the image of God. That does not yet appear, but we know that it will be such that we will actually see God as he is and then we will be like him. What I'm trying to get across here is that the essence of your future glory is that you will be transformed into the likeness of God. That is the the heart of the matter. You will be transformed to be like God. The essence of your present suffering is this. Sin has deformed and defaced the image of God in you. And that is the cause of your present suffering. But note this, that even in the state of sin, now remember, you are not in the state of sin. You believers are in the state of grace. God has begun to renew you. But even in the state of sin, man, apart from grace, there still remains some vestige of the image of God in man. You see, even sin cannot entirely erase the image of God in man. But you in the state of glory will find there will not even be a spot or wrinkle reminiscent of sin. Do you see that while sin cannot utterly erase God's image in you, God restoring in his image in you will utterly erase and remove all presence of sin. The former things will be gone. The righteous, says Jesus, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You see, the future glory is inherently greater because the work that is accomplished is greater. 
in addition to the, the greatness or the beauty of your glory, I want you to consider for a moment the duration of your future glory. Truly, it will be infinitely greater than your present sufferings. Your suffering is momentary. Your glory will be everlasting. Think of it. The first moment in glory, you will see God. You will be transformed into a glorious and perfect being. God will set everything right. You shall be glad, as Peter says, with exceeding joy. And as Revelation 21 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. That's going to take place in a moment. And then after that moment passes, you can pause and consider. This is my first day here. You have now everlasting days for that to work out and be enjoyed. Do you see? All of that will take place in a moment, and that's only your first moments in glory. And so you see that just in terms of the duration, if you live a really, really long time, it's measured in years. But your glory will never end. And so we see that there is no real comparison. There's no worth of your present sufferings when compared to your future glory. Now, in order for this to be attractive to us, we must have a sense, we must have a longing for that future glory. If that future glory is truly beautiful to us, then we understand the point that the apostle is making. Now in verses 19 through 22, we come to an illustration of this suffering in hope and perseverance. What does it look like to endure suffering in hope with perseverance? And this is an interesting example in the creation itself. Paul, by the word creation, refers to um, all of the irrational, both animate and inanimate creatures. Okay, so animals and plants and minerals, the earth itself and the sea and everything in it, probably the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars. Basically, every created thing except men and angels. All right? Sometimes we would call it nature or whatever it is we conceive of when we think of the creation except for men and angels. Why do I exclude men and angels? All right. Basically, we exclude men and angels because the elect angels are not subject to futility. But the creation, in verse 21, is subject to futility. The fallen angels will not be delivered. The creation itself that is being spoken of here will be delivered. Elect men, so that's angels. Angels are excluded. Elect men are the subject of the comparison we will find later in verse 23, right? Not only that, the creation, but we ourselves. The comparison there, the contrast, or you know, it's going to be a lesser to the greater argument. It would be superfluous or irrelevant. It would make no sense if we were included in the former group to put us in the second group. So we ourselves then are not the creation being addressed here. So that excludes elect men. 
that leaves reprobate men. Reprobate men, like the fallen angels, will not be delivered. And the creation which is being spoken of here will be delivered. So then this creation that is being spoken of is everything except for men and angels. Now this creation itself, Paul says, has an earnest expectation and eagerly waits for the revealings of the revealing of the sons of God. This earnest expectation and eager waiting, which are in verse 19, are synonymous or another way of saying hope and perseverance. We'll see a little bit later the definition of hope, but it corresponds to eager, excuse me, earnest expectation, and perseverance corresponds to eager waiting. To eagerly wait is to persevere. To earnestly expect is to hope. Of course, we must understand that this comparison is an example of what we call a personification, right? Personal attributes are being applied to an impersonal thing. The creation itself is not actually a person, but there are personal attributes applied to it for the point of the comparison, This happens all the time in Scripture, right? In Psalm 96, verse 12, trees rejoice. Psalm 98, verse 8, the flood claps its hands. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness is glad. There are many, many examples of created things being given personal attributes in order to show the point. Yet, we do see that there is actually a real connection between man and the rest of creation. You see, the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation's redemption is found in man's redemption and glorification. And the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We'll get to that in a moment. But this is a reference to man's fall and its consequences upon the creation. You see, the creation did not sin. It did not cause God to curse it. It was man's fall that brought about the curse upon the creation. And so there's a relationship between man and the creation. And you can think of it this way. Man was placed as God's vice regent, God's governor over the creation and when man fell then the thing over which he had dominion was cursed we read about this in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3 the Lord said cursed he's speaking to the man he said cursed is the ground for your sake in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you shall return. You see, the ground, the earth, was cursed because of man. The explanation of the thorns and thistles making man's toil on the earth greater or more difficult is because of man's sin. Because man was given dominion over the creation, his fall brought disaster upon it. 
And the futility of creation is that curse which God pronounced on it for man's sake. Now you see that the one who subjected creation to that futility was God. In fact, even in our New King James translation, it renders it with a capital letter, he or him, who subjected it. The creation did not willingly enter into subjection. It was subjected, that is, put under, because of him who subjected it. That is to say, God who pronounced the curse. Um, let's give me a moment, I'm sorry. The point all of this is that man's fall brought disaster upon the creation. But notice that it was in hope. In hope at the end of verse 20. This hope was actually announced prior to the curse. In the first proclamation of the gospel. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. When the Lord promised the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So man's fall into sin brought disaster upon the creation. It was subjected to futility, but that futility was in hope. That is to say, it was not going to be forever. There was already the proclamation of the gospel. And when man is delivered, because man is the cause of the futility, when man is delivered and glorified, then creation itself will be freed from that bondage. It will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into, verse 21, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, in verse 22, we find two more elements of this personification. We see that the creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Creation groaning. And and what might that look like? Well, it's interesting. in, In Matthew chapter 27... At the crucifixion of Christ, there's a great earthquake. And I, I think of that as an example of the creation groaning. But there are all kinds of other ways we see the creation groaning. We, we see it as if it were uh, suffering under the weight of its futility, right? The creation is designed by God to accomplish certain things. But because of the curse, it doesn't accomplish those things as it ought to. Yet, even in its futility, the creation still glorifies God, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Yet they do so with futility. And if we look, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, we can kind of infer some of the ways in which the creation is in futility, in which it is groaning, okay? So in Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 6, this is a description of of the new earth, right? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy all my holy mountain. For the Lord shall be full, excuse me, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you see, 
in Isaiah 11 a picture of what it will be like in glory. All of those, how would you, would you put your hand by a cobra now? Of course not, right? But all of that is merely evidence of the creation itself being subjected to futility because of man's sin. The creation that we see now is actually not exactly the same condition as that creation over which God said, it is very good. Jesus made a similar comparison to the, this uh, with the notion of, of groaning and laboring with birth pangs in John chapter 16. He said that a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's delivered the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And this is kind of the sense of the creation. It is right now laboring and and in sorrow, but then when man is glorified, that sorrow, that pain will be forgotten because man will have been restored to the place that God had given him at creation. Now the point of all of this is that the creation presently suffers because of man's sin. And you all understand various elements of the creation. And you can think of ways in which you see that the creation itself is in bondage. Think of if you have a garden. If you, if you plant tomatoes, you will likely get weeds. Right? Think of all, whatever your sphere of work. Notice how the creation itself seems to conspire against you. That's all part of the curse. As the creation originally was, when God said it was very good, it was a perfect place for man. Everything, you know, there there was a, a return for man's labors that we don't see right now. Right? We we toil, and by God's grace, we get to eat by the sweat of our brow, but we don't get the same kind of return that we would have with an unfallen creation. All right. So the creation then suffers in hope with perseverance because of the future redemption and glory that is promised to man. Now this illustration of creation's groaning sets up this argument, the conclusion of the argument from the lesser to the greater. And that brings us to our third point, the conclusion you must endure suffering in hope with perseverance. All right? So there's a, a lesser to the greater taking place here, right? The creation, it did not sin, but it was subjected to futility, and it continues to suffer because of your sin. Yet, that irrational creation hopes and perseveres because of your future glory then how much more ought you, being the one who did sin, and being the one who shall be glorified, and indeed being the one who has the first fruits of God's Spirit, how much more ought you be able to look past the present sufferings? Maybe put it another way. The creation itself has been suffering for nigh on 6,000 years, maybe 4,000 years at the time Paul wrote this. You and I will suffer for less than 100 years. And yet the creation continues to endure suffering in hope with perseverance. 
Moreover, you have, in verse 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. God has given you his own Spirit. Now, you know the background of the first fruits. The first fruits, you read all about them in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and the book of Exodus. The first fruits were a portion of the first of a crop that was given to God, devoted to God, in hopes that God would bless the rest of the harvest. I hear Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So there's a sense in which the, our first fruits are a pledge to God. Right? We're, we're, thank, we're giving grateful acknowledgement of what he's given to us. We render it to him in the expectation that he will bless the rest of the crop. And the rest of the crop is going to be many times greater than that offering. But notice here, it is God who gives the first fruits. Right? God has given us the first fruits of his spirit. So this is actually God's pledge to us concerning our future glory. So all that we have now is only just a sample, just a first fruit of our future glory. So the, the freedom from condemnation, all of these things that we have now are simply inklings, simply a deposit of what it is that God has in store for us. Now, in verse 23, we read that we ourselves groan. We groan within ourselves. I want you to know that there's a, there's a difference between groaning in the midst of suffering and grumbling in the midst of suffering, right? There is a difference. And, and I can show you this with the Lord Jesus because in Mark chapter 7, verse 34... It says, this is when Jesus healed the um, deaf and mute man. And Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed. This is our word for groan. And he sighed. And he said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. Jesus, I think, in seeing the effects of sin on this man, groaned. Right? Wanting for the day that he will... Take away all deafness, all muteness, all infirmities, all the effects of sin. And that caused him sorrow, right? To to see the effects of sin on mankind. And he compassionately heals this one man, but that is just one. And so I think Jesus there groaned, as it were, in a similar way to we groan in ourselves. It It is not wrong for Christians to look at suffering and to be grieved by it. And it is not wrong for us to cry out to God to fix it. right? And that is one of the differences between groaning and grumbling, is that in, in groaning, we let our sorrows be known to God, and in grumbling is when we allow our sorrows to make us complain against God. You know, and that's an important difference, isn't it? Uh, seeking God's deliverance and relief is perfectly acceptable. Complaining against him is not. All right, so we groan within ourselves. It is like we are brokenhearted and we are like the creation, you know, groaning under the weight of these sufferings. But we 
eagerly wait for the adoption. Now we need to clarify something here. Just a little bit ago, we are, we are said to already have the spirit of, of adoption, right? As many as are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Present tense, that you're already a child of God. You're not waiting for the adoption entirely. You're waiting for the fulfillment of that adoption, its completion. And then he qualifies it or explains it, the redemption of the body. That is the final aspect of your adoption. So you might say right now, you have the rights of the Son of God and you have the first fruits of the Son of God, but you don't have the entirety of it. There is more to come. And that adoption equals the redemption of the body. This is important, I think, for Christians to remember is that our glory is not going to be redemption from the body, but actually the redemption of the body itself, right? God made us body and soul, and, and while right now we are engaged in this war of putting to death the deeds of the body, and many of our sufferings come from the infirmities of our bodies, and one day these bodies will die, and they will go in the ground, and Yet, what we long for, in fact, is the resurrection of this body, and that will be the completion of our adoption, and that will be a big part of our glorification. So, this is sort of similar to Jesus Christ. He was the Son of God, and he was identified as the Son of God several times in the Gospels. But then we read back in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, there was a declaration of his sonship that came about because the spirit raised him from the dead. So again, it is not redemption from our bodies, but actually indeed the redemption of our bodies. Now we see in verse 24 the nature of hope. Paul says, for we are saved in this hope, that is to say, the hope of the redemption of our bodies, which is the principal idea of our glorification. But then he says, but hope that is seen is not hope. Um, hope is a, a, an expectation of some future good, right? An expectation of some future good. Uh, for example, you might hope this sermon ends soon. But you, after the sermon ends, you no longer hope for that. You know that, right? And this is what Paul is saying here. You, you don't yet see your future glory. And that's why you have to have hope. And, and it would be silly to, to have hope for something that you already see. In fact, he even asks, well, why does one hope for what he sees? And you see a relationship then between faith and hope. They are cousins. They are related to one another. And, and if we had to distinguish here, we would say that, that faith is trusting God and his promises. And hope is looking forward to those things that he promised. Okay? Because we don't yet have the completion of them. God promises you future glory. He promises to raise your body from the dead. You don't see that yet. You have to Live in hope of that. You have to hope that all of the things you suffer now are going to pale in comparison to the glory he has for you later. 
That's the difficulty. We see our present suffering. That's all we see. We, we see the suffering of the world. We see the suffering of our loved ones. We do not see the future glory. And that is why it is by faith. If we hope for what we do not see, that is the future glory, Paul says in verse 25, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And see, this is that, here again, hope and perseverance, knowing that the suffering that we go through now does not compare to that future glory. So we see several things in this passage, but what I want most for you to understand is that as a Christian, as God's child, we will suffer. But that suffering is actually, in the first instance, proof of you being a child of God. And that is confirmed further by your groaning under that suffering and your hoping in the future and your persevering. And we can't exactly see, right? We don't have any, it hath not entered in, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them who love him. We really can't even conceive of what that will be like. But there is sort of a way we can get a sense of it. And that's this, consider your present sufferings. Consider them and how strong you react to them, right? How significant of a part of your life they are. And then you remember God's promise to you that your future glory, whatever it will be, whatever it is you do not see, will make these present sufferings count as nothing. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is hard for us to suffer. We fear it. We shy away from it. We do not desire it. But we see, Lord, that you, even in our sufferings, are preparing us for that eternal weight of glory. And we see that your son humbled himself, and he was not ashamed to suffer, indeed to suffer in our place. And after his suffering, O oh God, you restored him to glory and gave him a name above all names. We pray that you would give us the hope and the patience to hang on and long for that day, O oh Lord. Give us hearts that are committed to that and look forward to that future glory. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.